This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Guys, Bella Catering, one of Sydney's best catering companies, pivoted to home delivery during the time of COVID, just like many people, they've had to do that. And look, we love them and we think that they do absolutely incredible food, especially at their catered events. They are delectable, but you can get that at home. Why would you even bother cooking for a bunch of people at your house and the reducing number at this stage as we're on the precipice of a potential second wave? Don't bother cooking. Just order it with Belly Catering. If you're in the greater Sydney area, they'll deliver it to your house and then done. The stress of eating is sorted. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, Maria. We love Belly Catering. Thank you for sponsoring all the President's Minutes throughout this entire thing. Guys, thank you for listening to all the President's Minutes and all of the One Heat Minute production shows. We have a banger of a week for you this week. Huge guests, huge minutes. Let's get to it. They know they can't win you over with their policies. So they're hoping to make it as hard as possible for you to vote and to convince you that your vote does not matter. That is how they win. That is how they get to keep making decisions that affect your life and the lives of the people you love. That's how the economy will keep getting skewed to the wealthy and well-connected. How our health systems will let more people fall through the cracks. That's how a democracy withers. Until it's no democracy at all. And we cannot let that happen. Do not let them take away your power. Do not let them take away your democracy. Make a plan right now for how you are going to get involved and vote. Do it as early as you can and tell your family and friends how they can vote too. Do what Americans have done for over two centuries when faced with even tougher times than this. All those quiet heroes who found the courage to keep marching, keep pushing in the face of hardship and injustice. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is a guest who, in their 10 seconds of silence, promised that they would be back. And they're back. One of my most stupidly talented friends um, who vocationally dabbles in film criticism. And it's frustrating because he's so good and he does it not as a full-time thing. Uh, He's one of my favorite people to talk to. He's one of my favorite Chicagoans, and that's a you know that's a really tall order to be in my favorite Chicagoans. As uh, people fans of Michael Mann would know, there's lots of great Chicagoans, and I consider him <laughs> one of the very best. Um, but if you want to read some of his great stuff, recently he wrote a beautiful sort of exegesis on Miami Vice for Vague Visage, and you can see a whole raft of his work that's either appeared on RogerEbert.com or on his personal website Metaplex. Brennan Hodges, welcome back to All the President's Minutes, my friend. It is my privilege, Blake. (laughs) It is good to see you. Uh, And this project is flying along. You will be shocked to know that 14 episodes into this was the last time that we spoke. And we're now 
for your minute at the 81st minute of 130. So we are flying through this show. It feels like a decade ago that we spoke on this show. You know, it's crazy because on the other hand, I, I don't know about you or those listening, but honestly, like quarantine has weirdly flown by <laughs> because every day just blurs <laughs> into the next one. Um, so it feels like I talked to you yesterday, but that doesn't mean I didn't miss you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, it's it, and I, I totally agree. Like some weeks, some weeks at the beginning of the week, like my kids go to daycare at the bookends of the week. They're, they're their daycare days, Monday and Friday. And I feel like, some days we're packing them up and putting them to daycare and picking them up on Monday. And then I blink and they're at school again. And I'm like, no, this isn't Monday. Like it's like, but the, a whole lot of stuff has happened in between a whole lot of conversations have happened. A whole lot of things have happened in the world and a whole lot of, a whole lot of those things that have just infused with how we're approaching this text now, um, uh, have happened, but yeah, here we are less than an hour to go of this movie. It's exciting to, to be here with you to talk to you about it. Likewise, as I said last time, I think this is one of those movies that's uniquely suited both to the format of uh, uh, an episode a minute, but also the fact that it gains new prescience by the week, it seems like, (laughs) uh, with the current crisis that's hitting this country. I remember early on, uh, a friend of One Eight Minute Productions too, Mr. Sean Burns, a great Bostonian film critic, said, Blake, you son of a bitch, you're using the fall of the democracy in my country to plan another show. Uh, how dare you? And I said, that was not my intention. It just, it, it, you know, it's not my intention. I just thought that, you know, if there's any year to talk about this movie, it's the final year of the first term of the presidency of Donald Trump and hopefully the first and final term of Donald Trump in the, in the office. Um, but I think that it's unfathomable to talk about how important this is um, continuously, speaking truth to power, um, cutting through a, a media that's under attack and under fire and and ultimately, regardless of what political allegiances you feel, being able to come to problems on moral terms, like what is right, what is wrong, what are the universalities of experience? I think this movie, this movie for me just gains new importance all the time, even though our mutual friend Matt Zolazite says, Blake, this movie is no longer a movie that I think of as something that could happen. It's like Lord of the Rings. Like it's a pure fantasy. <laughs> the very concept that people could reasonably approach a problem and agree to it. You may as well just be wearing Hobbit feet. Like it, it's just a fantasy these days. And I'm like, well, <laughs> that is, that is, that is the luxury uh, of uh, 2020 and the madness that continues to go. A lot more gray hairs on this guy that you're speaking to, my friend, uh, than than probably at the beginning of the year. But we approach, you know, I'm so glad I get to talk to you. I love talking to you on these projects that we've we've been um, talking to uh, each other, you know, whether that's a man project or, or this or future projects like Zodiac Chronicle. I get excited because when I give you a meeting minute, there's so much that we get to gab about and there is no bigger scene in this movie for mine than this incredible bookkeeper scene, which spans really spans like seven to eight minutes. Like it is for, for, for such a, a quiet um, and deliberately lit and moody scene. Um, it is, it, it is just jam packed with, you know, substance and incredible performance and tone. And it's just, it's, it's really magical. Yeah, it is. And what 
struck me as interesting was that when you invited me back, you gave me kind of the minutes that you needed to fill. And I was shocked there were so many available <laughs> for this particular scene because this scene is the scene that won Gene uh, Alexander an Oscar, yes. basically. Uh, just on the strength of this quiet, moody, dialogue-driven scene, she won an Academy Award. <laughs> and it, it, it's kind of like a fireworks show of drama and intrigue. And it's actually one of those scenes that's kind of like, uh, it summarizes a lot of what the movie is about in a single beat. And as I mentioned before, I love scenes that kind of encapsulate the whole movie at once. And, and I think that there's a lot of the tricks here uh, within this scene that speak to not only the themes of all the president's men or the performances or how lived in and the chemistry between the performers are, because it, you, you feel like you're in the room with them. You could feel that chemistry and that energy, but also the cinematic style. Yes. And what cinematic style looks like. And I think that this is an interesting movie in that big chunks of this movie just have a camera, uh, a lot of medium shots, a lot of uh, Im images where the camera's a little bit farther away than audiences today would be used to. But it's letting so much of how the compositions are, are done or the blocking or, or how the, uh, the, even the editing patterns are working together to create mood and to create a pervasive sense of, uh, it's a very good balance between dread and optimism and energy. And a really great example of this, uh, a little beat that uh, is something that um, Bernstein says in the scene is when he talks about how his coffee went cold. Yeah. And it, it's just like, okay, how do we make this scene feel chilly? How do we make it feel cold and spooky? We can't, what, what does a window blow open and the curtains go flying like a gothic romance or horror movie no the modern equivalent is your coffee running a little bit cold um and it's such a weirdly specific detail that does so much uh work for the scene in general and i think that's part of what makes the scene so captivating and it works so well yeah i, I think i think also there is so much that you know just like how much you can receive information, you know, I think, and that's the great contrast of this movie is when you have those wide open, glorious, like almost like Monument Valley, John Ford vistas, but instead of a vista, it's like a newsroom with like a flurry of activity at every single level, like people talking to each other, people tinkering with each other. You know, I love some of the throwaway conversations you can hear. Yeah. Um, clearly here in Foley dialogue, you know, you can hear someone go, is that the real, is that the way you're really going to frame this story? Like, like, you know, little bits and pieces, but there's so much happening at every person's desk at how everyone is dressed, how everyone is interacting with each other that I think it has a, a, I don't know, like a, a weird inverse effect that when you get these silent scenes and these two people, like it feels like your eyes have been used to this flurry of information. And then when you, when you just get these still people and the stillness of the people in the frame, it, you're watching it with like this, I don't know, it's like a greater attention to detail or something like that. There's this weird contrast that happens because I almost feel in the strangest of ways, I know this is going to sound odd, be putting it, but hopefully I can articulate it right is when you watch Jane Alexander in this scene, it's only in the later minutes and particularly in one of the minutes that we're talking about now in the 81st minute, 
that she is almost allowed to operate outside of like a, a, a shell. Like she, for me in the early moments of this scene, she is her, 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 her movement, like her head movement, her face movement, her posture. She is so rigid and so still and is restricted to such a, like a three dimensional, like prison space, if you like that every single thing that she's doing is, is exaggerated. The, like if she makes the, even the most minor of moves or the minor of purses of lips or the minor of, of, of like sort of wincing thoughts or looking up to, to sort of gather information or to remember or recall something, it feels like it's gargantuan. Like it's, and, and, and on a big screen it does because you're just sort of, that's all you've got to focus on is her incredible face. And, you know, it's definitely Academy Award worthy. That's for sure. My concern when I revisited this scene was that this is a performance that would not win today. Uh, no way. I don't think. No, no. It's a, it's, it is a deeply subtle performance. There's no, there's no show to it. And, it, and I, I think I, I recently spoke about it in another, in another minute um, with Mark Graham in episode 77, I said, and I'd love if you could help me recall another one, but this is the kind of Gary Oldman, George Smiley, uh, Academy Award nominated performance that I feel like it's like, but they didn't, he didn't win. They gave him for the showier Winston Churchill performance later, but like, this is the, the George Smiley equivalent where like that deserves the Oscar in Tinker Taylor. Like that, that does. Cause he is a glacier in that movie. So for those listening that aren't aware, Blake and I sometime eerily, Think in the same direction. Uh, in my notes, sir, I have the exact comparison you just made, um, which I also thought was criminally uh. un- underlooked. Even though I was happy he netted the nomination, I thought I still think that's his greatest on-screen performance, which is saying something. For his um, insane career, I like to think- for his insane career, oh, how yeah. much he's been asked to do and to give and to be the center, like and and allow other actors to to do subtle things around him, like like you know, I think of Leon a lot, and Jean Reno's performance is ten times better because Gary Oldman is so big, like he's as big as it yeah. gets in that movie, and but I think Tinker, like I mean Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is a flat out masterpiece. It's the reason we all watched oh, the yeah. Snowman. <laughs> it's the reason. <laughs> It's the yeah. reason we all endured, shall I say, the snowman. But uh, yeah, like I, I think it's a flat-out masterpiece. It's unbelievable, and I think he is, he is unbelievable in it. But it's funny. I wish people. That's that's the one moment that I wish this was a video recording because I literally, guys, saw Brendan lean forward like you son of a bitch. How did you read my notes? How did you read my mind? Um, but that's that's you know that is not a perform. Uh, I'm glad that it's a performance that's recognised but it's most certainly not a performance that often will, will get the Guernsey. You know, you have to wear the fake teeth and, and lip sync as Freddie Mercury. You know, you, you're not going to, you're not going to, you're not going to get, you're not going to get it for just having the entire birth and death of civilization ripple through the ripple through your eyes in the dialogue of, right. like, you know, in the dialogue of sort of espionage conversations like George Smiley. Yeah, no, at 100%. And I think that it's hard for performances to be as acknowledged when they are what I suppose you would call small yes. or delicate yes. or very nuanced. And that's not just to, you know, knock on the Academy. 
they've certainly made good choices and then many bad choices. And I certainly don't want to knock them <laughs> after actually, you know, giving all the praise and awards to Parasite, which they, which I, I think will go down as, you know, one of the greatest Oscar wins in history. Um, and that also happened this year. That, that also happened this year. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. But by that same token, and I don't want to undersell how good she is in this scene. It does remind me of what filmmaking can do to a performance, how good cinema and good craft can elevate a performance. And I think of that, uh, there's an old interview, I think it's from uh, Sir Michael Caine, where he talked about how uh, people always asked him, how did he give these dynamic layered performances? And he was with a, a director later on who was like, I want you to look a certain way at the camera. He's like, no, don't do that. And it's like the Kuleshov effect where, you know, this is what you should do. If you want me to look like I'm trying to seduce or be alluring with a lady, photograph the lady, then cut to me. And then that will reflect back on me. And I'll look like I'm giving a really layered performance when really <laughs> the filmmaking is doing a lot of that for me. Yes. And, uh, I always thought that was so fascinating because, you know, this is an actor who's a veteran and understands the craft and understands how craft and his, his craft is acting should be married. And I think that this scene in all the president's men is a great example of what that could look like in action. So if you'll indulge me a little bit, I'm just going to kind of walk you through how I think this scene does that really well. So what I love is how, it creates this series of thresholds that uh, Bernstein has to go through to actually have this interview take place yes. with Jane Alexander. So first of all, you know, he opens the door. He is the first wall or the first obstacle is that he's talking to the sister, right. Uh, of the bookkeeper. And then he enters and she is the, the sister uh, is now like kind of like, Oh no, you don't want me. And then you see Jane Alexander bathed in shadow, yes. you know, Gordon Willis <laughs> bathed in shadow. And it, it pivots from there to he goes in. And as someone in sales, I would love if Bernstein was a salesperson for me because the first thing he does is he literally gets his foot in the door by asking for a cigarette. So it's like this whole thing where he constantly is trying to get his foot through more and more doors. And then from there, she's, you know, in the back, then it does this shot that's almost a BOV shot from her looking at him. But guess what? Now he's behind these like railings on the staircase and it looks like he's in prison. Yes. And then he has to move from behind this like visual prison into this, a more brightly lit open space. And then after he's trying to get her to talk to him, he asks her this really easy confirm or deny question about who she works for. And she lies. And then he knows like, okay, now I'm getting further and further in. And then it does this amazing thing where then it starts cutting back and forth between them. Once he gets further into the room where he starts sitting down and now she is behind the same railings. And now she is in this shot of prison and being uh, constricted and feeling overwhelmed and that sense of paranoia. And this is a domestic setting. This is a setting where, it's just a home and they're using these objects of the home to be these symbols for oppression and imprisonment and paranoia. And then it cuts back to Bernstein and guess what? 
Dustin Hoffman is in those railings again. And then uh, they have to meet halfway and they emerge. So there's this idea of finding ways to like emphasize release and then tension and suspense, release tension and suspense. And all of that is what frames Jane Alexander's already amazing performance to feel like she herself is going through those phases. So when there's this element of suspense with those railings, you feel as though her performance is communicating that. And then when she goes into these wider open spaces, you feel as though it's her performance communicating that. And it's not to say she's not giving a powerhouse nuanced performance. She is, but it's how those two things interact with one another that makes it seem so amazing and intense and yet so organic and nuanced and it's being something big and small at once small or uh loud and quiet yes Uh, and i think that is the key of what makes the scene work so well and if it didn't set the whole scene up with that kind of stylistic dance between those two extremes the more intimate conversation later where it's just them talking wouldn't work the same way no so the whole way that it's framed it does so much of the work for you and for the actors. I, I love everything you said there. And I think that the, the big part of it is actually feeling like you have broken through those barriers and thresholds to the point where she is ready to relinquish things. And, and even when she's on the precipice, like she's saying initials, but won't say names. It's like, you're so close. Like you're so close to just saying it. And these final bits of imprisonment, these final layers where they are going to be impenetrable and you're watching, that's when you start to watch her body lilt. Like she's got all the posture and it's like, she, she comes right to that edge and she can't do it. I think you're so right. And there's just for folks, cause, because Brendan has not heard this as we're talking, but we'll, we'll, we'll likely have heard it after the show has gone live in episode 76, where we, relentlessly cheat so bad more around talking around the minutes than we have almost in any show that I've ever done. I speak to John Borston, who is a filmmaker and was Alan J. Pakula's assistant on all the president's men. And we talk about this scene and we talk about something that you've just talked about from a purely analytical perspective, but that, that John talks about in the very construction, Gordon, Alan really orchestrating these long scenes using Goldman script, but orchestrating these long scenes to have the space. And I think that the one moment that I would just, uh, one, one additional layer or formal element that it's not just to how the director's doing it. It's not just how it's that. It's just, I just want to underscore the incredible work of Robert L. Wolf, who is the editor of, of all the president's men, because his Robert L. Wolf, if you don't know, who's actually put me on a massive peck and par kick, is the editor of All the President's Men, and he's also directed and was the editor and in the editorial department on a bunch of um, peck and par movies. So he was the full editor on The Getaway, you know, the wild, you know, let, let's just name a couple of those: The Wild Bunch, Pack Arrett, and Billy the Kid, you know, and then obviously All the President's Men. He went on to edit Big Wednesday, Familius as well, and so. This is a guy who, in his preliminary assembly cut of the movie, cut it much more traditionally what we'd have. is like you finish a line of dialogue, you cut. You finish a line of dialogue, you cut. You finish a line of dialogue, you cut. And so what they found was, as, as folks who listen to episode 76 with John Borson, was that when they just did a traditional cut of this minute, it didn't play nearly in the tension that you're talking about. Like, it 
does not play with the tension and with the powerful and palpable sense of dread and layering. If you if you go too fast through it, you almost have to pronounce these layers, even if it's implicit, like there's an implicit pronouncement of like, if I give you space to absorb what is happening, you will implicitly understand that these are layers that are going through. And I think what is awesome in their collaboration is you go, Willis, who is just going absolutely mental as and, and mental in the coolest possible way in this scene, like the great stages, every single step, every single blocking moment is perfectly lit. And the stages of blocking, like slowly reveal all of Jane Alexander's face. They, um, you know, um, they slowly start to enshroud Bernstein because he's trying to be a bit like calculating and how he's extracting information. But I think a huge part of it is just the, the editorial restraint in this scene to keep those gaps and those pauses because it like, there is something that is that you can't quantify if you were just talking about it, but there's unquantifiable power in the gaps and the spaces. And exactly as you said, the temporality of a clo- of, of a, a coffee getting colder, because like I'm sitting here, I've got my second coffee for the day because I'm an I'm an addict, and uh, and I'm and I started drinking my coffee as you were talking, <laughs> going this thing's co- cooling down, um, it's cooling down, and I've got to drink it because it feels like this is time passing. But I just think. You know, every actor who delivers an incredible performance is absolutely aware of how helpful a cinematographer can be to making them look good and how a director helps them craft that performance. And particularly an editor, like knowing, you know, know, if you're doing 11 takes, you know, they're picking the best take for you, you know. Um, uh, You know, Hoffman notoriously is a guy that takes, you know, five or six takes to get a run-up. So you would imagine in this scene, like, there's a lot of run-ups for him to to hit it where he's happy and and maybe where Mr. Pakula is happy as well. But no, it's a, it's a wonderful it's it is such again this movie unlike some of the previous projects we've talked about which are pure auteur obsessions that are sort of crafted by and a single voice has such a command over every element of it. This the alchemy of this scene is like the alchemy of this movie. It is like the 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 structure of the st- the structure of the script the 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 perfect the perfect cinematography the way that the actors are being directed by Pakula and the trust they have in him to, to give the space and the gaps in the time and then the editing just to make sure that the flow and the pace is so deliberate and so 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 on point but never at a moment being too fast or too slow that's going to lose your attention just captivating the whole way through you know i'm i'm so happy you said that and i thought that your line about the alchemy of the scene is the alchemy of the movie because I think that's so true and I love that you brought up structure because something I love about the way this whole scene is bookended in this movie is how this scene hard cuts to a high energy scene between Woodward and Birdstein where there's like their very famous banter only Hoffman now is playing a person who's you know who who drank 20 cups of coffee and he's like (laughs) super hyper so it pivots from a very low energy scene on the surface. Yes. We know it's high energy from how it's making us feel, but it's a very formal, precise, quiet scene. And it hard cuts to this high energy outburst. (laughs) And the way those two scenes play off one another, I think ultra they retroactively make you feel like this scene was stronger and the scene after it is better. Yes. And I think the best edits, 
do that. One of my friends had a conversation with me the other day where he was trying to think what are his top 10 favorite cuts, not his top 10 favorite edited scenes, just his favorite cuts. And I, I think that this is a really great example of what a really powerful cut can do where you see, Oh, like speaking of Gene Alexander's performance, but also Hoffman's, they seem so low key here that the contrast between seeing Hoffman play someone trying to match the energy of Jane Alexander a little bit to matching now this new energy with uh, Woodward, it, it makes his performance seem more dynamic and have a broader breadth uh, by comparison. And one thing I want to mention too, speaking about how the scene was edited and assembled in an offbeat way to the conventional narrative form of editing where you want every moment to cut after a line and you cut to the close up of who's talking and so on. This scene actually has one of my favorite shots in the whole movie. And it might not be a shot most people think of when they think about all the president's men, but there's this like uh, high angle shot yes. uh, where it cuts to this kind of the closest you get to a wide shot and it's looking down. And it, the whole scene is apparently lit by one lamp and the lamp is in the top right corner of this shot and the room and uh, Hoffman is now mostly in shadow and you can kind of see some of his facial features, but he's wearing a darker suit and his hair is long and moppy. So you can't really see him. He's mostly in silhouette. And then Jane Alexander's face is completely obscured <laughs> by a lampshade. Yes. You can't see her. I can't, I can think of very few movies where the cinematographer or editor is like, really? You want us to cut to a wide shot where you can't even see the people in wide? The whole point of coverage <laughs> is to see how people relate to one another. This breaks so many narrative rules. It's not quite like the 180-degree rule in crossing the line, but it's pretty close. Yes. And it's like, what a choice is that? Like, what a decision. And I think that part of what makes the scene work in general so, so well, speaking of the alchemy between all the creative forces, is something you've already spoken of, which is trust. Mm. That the actors know that, okay, we know that the camera's in a place where we won't see you, so I know you might feel, Jane, that your performance is going to be missed, but it won't be. Trust us. <laughs> trust that we know what we're doing. We have a strategy for how we're going to assemble this scene together. And I think this particular shot speaks volumes because she's trying to hide. And this character probably would feel more comfortable if Bernstein could only see her through a lampshade. <laughs> and, so, and, and she has this great position where her hands are like tucked in under her legs and her arms are really tight. It looks like she's almost about to pose for going down a water slot. <laughs> she, she's, so, she's like constricting her body so close together. And... Or like she's trying to recede into her shell. And in this case, the shell is the lampshade. Um, and this is just a shot that most movies would never attempt. And if they did, the actors would be like, all right, director, Mr. Director, Mrs. Director, or Miss Director, I'm getting nervous. You know, what, what's happening here? And I love that there seemed to be such an implicit level of trust between all these people to make these big choices and to take these big swings. And I know that it's like a, a relatively brief shot, but, you know, this is some Antonioni shit where you can't see the actors' faces. And I think that I haven't been on a single one 
keep minute production podcast without name dropping Antonioni. So why stop now? Oh God, this is some Antonioni shit. Is the favorite sentence I've heard spoken this week. Um, but no, I I, I think also you're, you're so right in the choices that they're making to underscore things implicitly and just purely visually and artistically. But also, you know, I can't help in a in a pacula paranoia trilogy and at the time that this was made to not think about you know 1974 is the conversation which also very deliberately takes high art camera angles to to sort of identify this omniscient viewer as a surveillance like this is the the i don't mm-hmm. know whether it's like the 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 visual personification of like the feeling that they're constantly being surveilled and the feeling they're constantly being watched and just simply the stakes of like I'm being watched and exactly as you said, it then bounces, you know, just it, on the outside of our minute because we've cheated a little bit, but that's fine. Um, uh, it bounces into this high energy scene where, you know, Woodward says the great joke, you know, you're scared of Walter Cronkite, you know, like, you know, the, she's scared of the US government, the CIA or the FBI and you're scared of Walter Cronkite, um, you know, jumping through the window and stealing the story. So it's, it's really a really powerful scene. The whole scene is absolutely unbelievable. And for the centerpiece scene and, that's what's funny, you know, for folks who know, I, after having listened, I, I asked John Boston about episode 50, what scene he'd want to talk about. And I would have given him carte blanche. He's one of the only folks so far that I've, except for Brendan, as he talked about, that I've like kind of given carte blanche. There's like two or three people in the whole show I've given carte blanche. Sort of pick uh, a minute. And John said, I want to speak about that scene because he, he felt that it was the scene of the movie and he felt that it, executed the themes and the alchemy of the collaboration and articulated that better than anything. And he was in, was hugely admirable, uh, you know, hugely effusively admirable of Jane Alexander's performance um, and, and just how, how incredible and important she was. So with that, we've got to watch this minute together. So it is now the 81st minute of Alan J. Pakula and Robert Redford's masterpiece from 1976, All the President's Men. It's one hour 20 on the dial if you're looking at it exactly. Um, if you're looking at it, you're seeing this silhouetted mop head, as Brendan said, Dustin Hoffman, that single lamp that's in the corner, also has the bookkeeper's husband who passed away a couple of years before. Um, there uh, is, is sort of framed, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't notice it if you're uh, in the scene uh, only passively or it's only your first or second viewing. It's something that I've started to pick up on in this scene, just his, his military image right there. And now... And actually, funnily enough, sort of facing in the same angle as Hoffman is. So I don't know if that's uh, that's doing something. But we're going to watch this minute together now. You guys are going to listen along, and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Uh, we're part of this. I had all the evidence. It was destroyed. I don't know who destroyed it. I think Gordon did a lot of shredding. Hard evidence. Well, I can't say that it would positively prove that they planned the break-in, but it would come pretty close. Can you tell me anything anything about who got the money we have uh, had some help on this from a couple of sources and this is a way of confirming you I don't want you to feel you're in a position where you have to disclose names you know I, I can just ask you initials and in that way you're not divulging any information we have some idea and will that be all right Was 
Was it an M? You can just nod either. Was there an M? You can just nod either way. I love that so much right. of the second half of that minute is Jane Alexander looking down and, and refusing eye contact. It's just one of the other great indelible performance touches of like, I don't, I don't like where I've gotten up to in this moment. I don't like where I've gotten up to in this. I don't know. I don't like necessarily how much I have divulged so far in talking to you, Mr. Reporter from the Washington Post, but her, her looking down and then again, the restraint. Imagine how many, how much, how fast his heart is beating and how restrained Hoffman is being as Bernstein in comparison and contrast to the next scene. Um, but we're right on, we're right into the downhill slope of this scene and, um, and it's, it's just magic stuff. It is. And what jumped out to me when you gave me what moments to talk about, this scene spoke to the now more than I was honestly prepared for. And what I saw when I watched this scene is that this is a woman who's struggling with her own complicity. And we always wonder not so much going into the complicity of even the German soldiers and Nazi Germany. That's a very extreme example, but thinking more in a more contemporary way about our police department yes. or the other great journalism movie spotlight, um, dealing with the sexual abuse scandals inside the Catholic church. Although I have to be on the record, um, that I don't, I wish spotlight was a little bit more cinematic, but, um, <laughs> sue me. Uh, I do think, though, that she's dealing with the fact that she knows that she helped something terrible occur. And what is it like inside the police department when you're a mid-level accountant or bookkeeper and you're the one helping budget the police? And you see, for example, the amount of cases that are being settled for police brutality and you see the amount of money going out. And you could argue one way or another if the amount of police brutality cases is a form of corruption or not. I'm sure plenty of people would. Certainly the amount that are hushed up definitely seems uh, it has shades of a similar type of corruption. And I, 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 I'm fascinated by this idea. And I think that it, it, what really struck me was like, where does complicity begin and where does it end? Yes. Because these people that are the, let's say mid-level uh, people who are not the agents of causing this, but they are passive and around it and enable it. And how guilty are they? Yes. How do we hold them accountable? Because on one hand, you know, if there weren't accountants to delicately deal with the budget of police settlements, there wouldn't be as the, the, the system wouldn't crumble. It wouldn't work. So in a weird way, they're enabling the system, but then you could say, okay, well, if I didn't do it, somebody would. Yes. And there's a, a kind of a bystander effect where you think, oh, well, this, something's going to happen. Someone else will, you know, intervene and stop this. And this seems to me to be a scene about a, a woman who has a moral compass. She says she didn't know anything was up, but she kind of maybe did well, before she says. I think in this moment, it underscores it. She says, he goes, do you have evidence? And she goes, oh yeah, I had it. 
Like I had proof of everything that was going on by, by definition. <laughs> it feels like by definition as a bookkeeper, you are keeping an audit trail of money going in and out of the books. Like that, that is as, as simple as what you're doing. You are, you are live auditing your accounts to make sure that the movement of money goes and that it can be reconciled. That is your whole job. Like even if you're a teller at a bank, that's your job is ultimately, or whether you have systems to do it or to, to help you, it is to reconcile. Someone takes out a hundred bucks, you give them a hundred bucks, you make sure the hundred bucks is taken out of their account. Someone deposits a hundred bucks, you put it in the right account, you take the hundred bucks off them, you put them in the thing. At the end of the day, it's your, your till your balances. It says that money has gone to the right place and it accounts for the money that you've received. Whatever the case may be, like checks and balances, that's it. And so for me in this moment, when she actually says it, it is, it talks, it, it wrestles with that, that nature. Like by definition, that's the case. I think also there's one way it's been articulated before that I really liked. Um, and I think it was kind of prophetic was, um, in a, one of Chappelle's specials, uh, he talks about, he talks about if a system is inherently racist or inherently broken, you can't like and people and people are incentivized to do it from the system then the system is the thing that's broken and so he was referencing the apartheid system in south africa and he said when when south africa was liberated from apartheid and they and all of all of those key political figures including mandela and mabutu and those guys came together they basically held sort of a nuremberg-esque trial but less a trial to hold individuals accountable other than obviously some key individuals for violence, et cetera, but like individuals who participated in the system because they wanted a deep confessional to allow for people to tell them exactly what it did and how it worked and how that system incentivized and propagated racism in their country. And so I, I think it's this weird thing, this delicate thing where you have to, and it's actually hard to grasp your head around. It, it takes people with like great intellectual fortitude to kind of do it, to say, this, if the entire, and this is a challenge that I think a lot of, uh, you know, whether it's Australian or American political systems are talking about, it's like if the system by definition is corrupt and it's incentivizing you to do bad shit because that's what the system wants, then you almost have to turf the system. But you, in, in interrogating it to understand the layers of corruption, you almost have to be able to be willing to pardon the people who participated in it to some extent, you know, you to pardon a bookkeeper for potentially being complicit because it incentivized them to be complicit. Like, you know, she's just doing her job. Um, and, but part of her job is keeping illegal activities audited and, 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 and not revealed to other sources. It is a real quandary. It's, it's, and, and I think in this moment, part of what, Ber why Bernstein starts to really ask this more aggressive line of questioning towards the end is him going, holy shit, she knows everyone who is involved, but there's no, there's ne we're never going to find the tape, the Nixon tape. We're never going to find the piece of paper. We're never going to find the audit trail, but this person, because they destroyed it because they knew how powerful the information that she held onto was, but this person knows everything that happened. Yeah. And it's, it's hard because on one hand, as you say, her status quo was incentivized, right? Yes. Um, she, we all have a certain right or means of opportunity to take care of ourselves and our family and things like that. But at the same time, there's obviously an element of risk assessment and risk tolerance yeah. where 
if you're in a situation where, hey, I saw something bad happen, what will the blowback be? Um, I won't give any details, but part of my day job and I'm in the insurance industry, I saw some sketchy stuff happening at levels above me. And uh, I saw some of those things in a documented way. And I, some people reached out to me off the record and were like, would you be willing to go on the record? And my answer was like, maybe let me think about it. And I talked to a few people, including my attorney and they were like, well, what, what's the blowback? And I had to ask myself like, okay, if I talk, what's the worst case scenario? Could I lose my job? Could I put my staff at risk because I'm responsible for others? So it's like, there's these levels and these questions that are really hard to wrangle. So I, I sympathize with being part of something and not knowing how to deal with it. Yes. Um, I, I wound up speaking a little bit on the record, but mostly getting other people to do it that were in a position to get less blowback because they were more tenured or higher up or whatever. And it all worked out fine in the end, but it's a situation where it's like, if someone had were in my shoes, I wouldn't necessarily blame them for not wanting to talk because, you know, particularly if you're married and have kids like you, Blake, I'm, you know, a legally single guy and I have far less or far fewer people dependent on me. And I, I, I hope this doesn't seem like an off the cuff conversation because I do think that's the heart of what this scene is about. It's the heart of what this this movie is about. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, where, where does complicity begin and end? How do we deal with accountability? And to go to a slightly lighter uh, shade of this, so we don't get too heavy. One of my favorite conversations to have with people is the postmortem of cinematic fuck ups. (laughs) And it's like, when you, when you wonder, okay, how many people had to sit by George Lucas and nod their head at all the stuff in episode one? How many people had to sit around Peter Jackson when he was making the Hobbit movies? And I know that there's apologists of the prequels and the Hobbit movies. I personally am much more of a prequel apologist than a Hobbit apologist, but there's all these people that were like, oh yeah, Radagast having bird shit on his head is a good idea. And they were like, yes, Peter, let's, let's have bird shit on this great wizard's head. Um, and recently, uh, we haven't talked about one of the greatest unprosecuted crimes of the last year, which was the rise of Skywalker. And, uh, just the sheer volume of people around, you know, JJ and Chris Terrio and Kathleen Kennedy, who, saw what the movie was like and they were like, Oh yeah, we should do this. And look, I, I, I'm more generous to the rise of Skywalker than a lot of people are. I think there's actually a lot in that movie. That's okay. You're more gener- pretty good. You're, but you're more generous to the rise of Skywalker than the other person you're talking to right now. <laughs> I I'm well aware. And, but uh, by that same token, it's like how many people were on that production that saw Rose getting eliminated from the edit. And they were like, this is fine. And I know that Chris Terrio said she had a lot of scenes with Leia or what constituted Leia, Carrie Fisher's previous performance in The Force Awakens, and that footage was shit, so they cut her out. I think that's a reasonable explanation, but guess what? There were reshoots. If there were issues, 
that excuse, maybe he's telling the truth, but it doesn't justify cutting out a major character in your movie. Um, and, so it's like how many people around them were okay with it, you and, know? And do you want, do you want me to give you one bigger? I'll, I'll, I'll just give yeah. you, a, I'll just give you a bigger one. And this might be blasphemy. I think they should have recast Princess Leia. I think if oh I don't I I and and there's only one answer. I'm just going to give you the alternative before everyone jumps on me. I know we're taking a great digression about this, but I'm like, cast yeah. Meryl Streep. She's the greatest living. She's the greatest living female American actor. She's already played a proto Carrie Fisher in a movie before. You get Meryl Streep to come in and play Princess Leia, and everyone calls her Princess Leia, and she knows it, and she kind of knows Carrie and knew her intimately, and they were very friendly. Right. And you get her to come in and just play Princess Leia because this is the thing. It's like in that moment, obviously it's a tragedy, but you, do you think people would have like even barely, they wouldn't have touched a criticism on that performance. It would have just been like, you could have just been there and done it. Like how you, it's it's like, it's the same thing that, it's the same reason why Nolan like binned the original Dark Knight 3 and started again with Dark Knight Rises. Because the Dark Knight Rises doesn't right. exist if Heath Ledger's alive. It doesn't. I actually think that the Lego Batman movie stole the original idea for what the third Nolan movie was, which is that basically, you know, there's a whole bunch of other villains hanging around. They're all popping up because they're all influenced by the Joker. And they're stupid enough to let him out, let him out of Arkham Asylum. They break him out like some douchebag penguin or, you know, something like that or a Riddler character right. like coming out. And then he just kills all of them and just burns the city to the ground. <laughs> and Batman has to do something really gnarly to stop it from happening. Um, right. I, I've always thought that. And and so, yeah, no, I, 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 my my thing is, it it's tragic. You may not want to show it, but I think it's almost equally tragic to take a scene from a movie that doesn't exist and mess around with it. I think it's almost as egregious. Spoilers for the Rise of Skywalker to show a digital version of her face in any of the movies. Like I think it was egregious in Rogue One when they redid it, when they like digitally changed her. I think it's egregious that they showed a younger version of her, like placating, like, oh yeah, she was a Jedi mad. Like, just cast Meryl Streep, just put Meryl Streep in the role and have her play it, so that you can execute the story as it was intended to be done. Because are we also saying that no one should ever be recast as, like, do you think Shakespeare geeks are like you can't ever recast King Lear after? you know, someone played him. Like, people have been playing King Lear for 100 years. Like, do you think that Princess Leia is more important as a character than King Lear? Julius <laughs> Caesar? Like... I mean, honestly, maybe. <laughs> but that being said, yeah, I don't think that would be worse than what we got. No, I don't um, think it would I, be worse. I certainly... Like, I have, an, I have a solution that I thought about, which just was... Use the footage from Force Awakens and Last Jedi, but make them like, make, I, I would, this is controversial, but I would kill her off camera and make The Rise of Skywalker about honoring the legacy of the two now dead Skywalkers. And you could use that footage not to make her an active character, but you could find like her diary or like have them be old holograms or even use some of those things to make her a Force ghost and I say that exclusively because the footage is so uncanny oh my God. that you need to find a way to use the footage if you are going to use it in a way that plays into how uncanny it is. 
And so like a hologram would look and feel a little off. Her being a forest ghost would look and feel a little bit off. And I think that would be better. But the point is, is that this is a movie where, you know, there are so many people that had to approve so many bad decisions and seeing, I know this is like a light comparison, but seeing something like this compared to, you know, 75,000 Homeland Security troops invading our cities, it's like, how? so after the protests were getting really bad, one of my friends was trying to explain to me how this would never happen because Trump loves threatening to do really bad things, but cooler heads prevail. And he like found the legality of how impossible it is and how many laws and how many things would have to be broken for these troops to be sent in. And I was like, it's going to happen. They don't don't care. There's so many people who will just go along with it because of whatever. And like, he's right, but I'm also right that there are so many layers of the chain of command. There are so many people that have to approve it. Going back to Jane Alexander's character here, there are bookkeepers that have to budget these 75,000 troops invading our country. And how do you deal with that? So here's another question. It's like, okay, well, if she is complicit and the, the bookkeepers are complicit, well, what about the friends of these people? Because they're like, oh, no, be safe. You know, d- don't do anything bad, blah, blah, blah. But are you, if, what, do, what do you stand to gain or lose by trying to say you should not do this? You should, like, leave your job. You should quit. And there's that great line in the scene, which is, um, I, I forget which one of the spooks it is, but it's like, oh, they were told, like, by their spouse, do the right thing or I'm leaving you, and then they quit. Um, it's like, so that's, like, a valid thing where she was like, if you don't quit, uh, I'm complicit. And, and I and, I had never read it this way and I wanted to flag it with you because I know you haven't listened to it yet because it hasn't been published. But I spoke to a, 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 an emerging actor, Bo Roberts, who's you know been a model in his past, had a bit of an eclectic career, like a model and a, and a now actor, and he's you know done some extra work and stuff like that. He's breaking into the scene. But one of the things that he read and I loved his reading of it was Bernstein is a salesman. Yes, he pushes his way into the door. Yes, he kind of like does all the right things to get into the door. But that gesture of the bookkeeper's sister to offer him a coffee is her way to make her sister confess. Yeah. Like it, it is exactly to your point of like, there is a moment, like it's, it may not be as overt as, you know, and we don't know, like she was married, her husband died a couple of years before There's It's not really clear whether her sister is living with her at the time or just over there to visit. But it's like, if I ply this guy with coffee and I leave him in the room for long enough and I let them talk and I just get out of their hair I'm going to see my sister's life change because before she's just like doing accounts. She may start to realize that there's some dodgy stuff going on. And especially with Watergate, you get a bit of an aha moment because at the moment it's Mm -hmm. just like, it's, it it is just for corporate fat cats. It's got way more money than cents. And, um, you know, when you see what it's actually being used for, then in that moment you realize that you have been unintentionally complicit in this kind of activity because you don't really know what the money's doing until someone breaks into Watergate for internal espionage. So she's been complicit, but unknowingly for the longest time. And then the question is now I know about it. What do I do with it? And so her life would have changed. She would have just been going to work, recovering from the fact that her husband had passed away, all that jazz. And now they are here in this moment and her sister has been fucked up this whole time. Like, the emotional turmoil and turbulence for Jane Alexander's bookkeeper character. It is unfathomable how she's feeling in these moments. And then, and then her sister sees 
the reporter on the doorstep. And it's like, come in, have a coffee. Like once he's in the door, it's like, this is the way. Once you confess, once you get this off your chest, your life can change. Like, and, and whether or not her sister ever did the math that you talked about, which is like, what, what will my, what will my revealing this information do? And like, very fortunately, I've never been in a situation that you sort of, sort of found yourself in and described, which is like, you are privy to really sensitive information and, and things that are bad and that you have to make the call. Cause I would imagine a younger, you know, the younger blowhard version of myself. Some people still think I'm that young blowhard, but um, that younger blowhard <laughs> version of myself with no connections could make that call and go and feel like I was being righteous. But you bet your sweet ass right now that the first thing that I'm thinking about are my, my kids. Like the first thing I'm thinking about is my kids and my wife and thinking about my family and thinking about what that means. And, you know, that's why the great whistleblower stories resonate. And, you know, we haven't talked about the insider yet, but let's do it. It's like, that's the great wondry of Jeffrey Wigand's character is that he's so principled and so righteous about what he wants to say that when those other things become secondary, it like breaks apart his marriage. It breaks apart his wife. It, it destroys all of his chances. And it's only like later on as he then is vindicated for his whistleblower stance and, and what, what, what his stance does later that it's like that true, the true weight of what it means to be a whistleblower is here. And I think a lot of phone calls and a lot of other things that happen in this movie show that people know information and there are stakes, but Jane Alexander's performance in this moment and this entire scene and all those complex and kind of very difficult to answer questions that we have about what it means to, you know, to, to be in a position to be a whistleblower are all kind of wrestled with in this moment. Like it vindicates, it vindicates her to a certain extent, but absolutely it just, I think you're right. Every time I watch it, I wonder, would I have had the balls to do it? Would I have had the balls to do it yeah. and be her? Well, but by that same token, I think it's really important to point out she never went all the way. Right. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, how complicit did she remain by only giving the, initial because it's possible that if she went on the record and she blew the whole thing wide open, the last half of the movie wouldn't exist. And obviously they almost lost their career (laughs) by getting the initials wrong later and not to steal another minute, but like that's the whole, uh, denouement of the movie where, you know, they're in trouble for getting the information wrong and they got that information wrong because of this conversation. If she just gave them more information they would have blown Watergate wide open way faster. So in a weird way, well, yes, she also is a whistleblower that, you know, gave them the right path to go down that eventually guided them to cracking the story. She also honestly didn't do enough. And so how, like, should we blame her for that? Should we hold her accountable? I know that if there was an equivalent for DHS or police brutality where people saw things internally and said some things, but not enough with the climate we're in right now, people would say, no, that's unacceptable. You have to go all the way. And we have the benefit of watching this decades after it happened, but I'd be very interested in hearing how people reacted to this scene at the time where some people are like, no, fuck that. You should have gone farther. No, you should have absolutely blown the case wide open at your own expense. But again, I I get it because I've been in a very, very, smaller version of that situation and th- there's pressure and, and it's it, like how much do how, how do we deal with it and also 
when you're just talking about what are the stakes with a company, that's fine. You know, what are the stakes with a company? What are the stakes with a small company? What are the stakes with a large scale company? What are the stakes with a huge corporation? And what I think is kind of unfathomable, and uh, maybe it's more pronounced for me because I'm Australian and like I look at our country and we're, you know, 20, 25 million people. And, you know, the the, the greater Los Angeles population is 18 million, <laughs> you know, just for, just for clarity. And I, and, and I look at what is it when you are three or four maneuvers away from the most powerful man in the world in the last remaining superpower in the world at the time? Uh, you know, because ultimately, you know, although the Soviets were absolutely a power at the time of this movie, that you know, in in terms of the Cold War, the the sort of stranglehold and grip of post-war has started to dwindle. Like we were we're in the downhill yeah. slope of the the the, um, the USSR at this time and the Soviet Union. Like there were still those last gasps, but largely, you know, America was achieving ascendancy, and and Nixon doing a whole bunch of things, meeting with China, etc., was part of that ascendancy, and then. You know, landing on the moon and there's a, there's there's ascendancy moments the token moments but there's all that other simmering stuff you know the connections in the world the dominance etc um but i just can't imagine what it's like to be that close to the most powerful person in the world who you absolutely know would kill you without blinking if they knew what you said mm-hmm. i don't know what that pressure would be like because it's almost like it's almost like a russian roulette it's like if i say it i got a one in six shot that i survive Let's spin it. Let's spin it, right? Let's spin <laughs> the little wheel and see if I'm there. Because I, that's one thing where it's like your livelihood is one thing, your life is something else. And I think that in this moment, you know, when she feels like she knows she's being watched, I think in that moment you can absolutely empathize and go like, if she's just giving this information, it pushes, it propels them forward so much farther. It gives them those mechanisms. It's information that a bunch of different sources could potentially get. And it's not, it doesn't like make her a lightning rod for attention. She's going to get attention. She's going to get attention after this once the story actually breaks um, about what she said and did she say anything and who did she reveal it to, etc. But I, I feel like it's so hard to know what it's like to be that close to people who you know would kill you if you reveal that information. And especially putting that on the shoulders of a woman who is essentially an accountant and then like she's just funneling the money and doing what she's doing and all these other people who are actually knowing that it is a slush fund, that it is being used for internal domestic uh, political espionage. It's so hard to imagine like them going, oh yeah, like just throw it all on this woman. Yeah, no, she shouldn't reveal it. You know, like that is really tough, really tough to imagine what that would be like. Uh, Yeah, I I don't think anyone of us could possibly imagine, particularly when you know how much money she saw changing hands all the time. Like she mentioned, you know, you know, one day it was $6 million. And they were like, oh, they had a budget of $350,000 for dinner. And, you know, so clearly she's like, okay, if this is their pocket change, they could pay a fraction of this to a, like a hitman. <laughs> yes. And they would have no issue doing that, particularly in light of, uh, you know, the direction the country was going internationally and the wars that were being fought and uh, all those different issues. And it just makes me go back to the fact that like it's a, it's a quandary that's difficult to untangle. And I don't personally have any answers. I only have more questions and it's like, okay, if this is someone who is in this position where she could change the world for the better, she has to also ask herself, do I matter? 
at what point mm. do we have to throw ourselves under the bus for the greater good? And I will name drop um, uh, a, a mutual uh, a person that we mutually admire and, and someone you've had on your show many times, which is Walter Chaw. And Walter is, in my opinion, one of the most uh, morally principled people that I've ever seen. Agree on the internet and he'll talk about how he walked away from well-paying positions because they were asking him to do something dodgy. And it's not like he was changing the world or not. He just walked without a second guess. And I think that that standard is impossible for most people to reach. Or, you know, being one of the top three or four living film critics in the world and being offered paying Public, p- paying roles at publications where he disagrees with their publisher's ethics and he just yeah. refuses to do, he refuses to write for them. And you're like, like they, their entire company might be fine, but like one person in there that like he fundamentally doesn't agree with, he's like, I won't do it. And it, and you're like, you're walking, you know that he sacrificed money for that. Like he sacrificed big stuff for that. So it's just, it's, it's a, it's a real shock. It's a real shock. It is, and I think, and it is, and I think that's kind of the thing that if people like that actually put the greater good above themselves in these situations, you know, Watergate could have been blown open much faster, and maybe more people would have uh, had harsher things levied against them later down the road once if things came out from someone on the inside to that level, or at least that early yes, and they could have done less harm throughout that time. So it's like on one hand, no, she is not the orchestrator of any of this. And yet there's this idea of this is a movie that is really a series of scenes that have the same moral quandary, which is a, what would you do? You know, if, if you were Jeffrey Wygon and the insider, would you be the whistleblower about big tobacco? And that's a great movie about a guy who's trying to do something great. Who's also kind of an asshole. (laughs) And that's a whole other kettle of fish to deal with. And, um, I think that great cinema is typically all about navigating historical currents Yes, and navigating moral currents and asking you how you would cope or deal with things rather than easy answers. And something that I think all the president's men does that makes it such a document and makes it such this uh, ultimate tome of its era where it's so rich and so dense. And I always say there's no greater movie about this time in history because it captures that youthful energy, but also the paranoia and the pessimism, but also how, the government was at its peak of distrust by the American people and how nobody knew how to deal with that. Because if you know people in the government, it's like, okay, do I stay friends with them? Am I enabling an enabler? Yes. If I do that, how, how do you deal with these issues? But it's a movie that isn't just, you know, dealing with that by depicting it. It's diving into these issues in a way that also is telling a very elegant narrative. And there are so few historical movies that can be truly about big questions and big things and get you asking what you would do and get you asking, you know, 
how would different people respond in these situations that uh, are good? Like most historical movies or most biopics or whatever are just, oh, here's a thing that happened and here's a storybook interpretation of these events. And I don't think there's honestly a single movie that's trying to capture a historical event that dives into these questions with that much nuance in general. And the fact that there are so many scenes in this whole movie that would, you know, catalyze these same questions as this one is a testament to its power. And I also would say, I don't think there's a single performance in the movie from any of the quote unquote whistleblower characters that communicate the pathos of that crisis of conscience. Yes. And how you deal with that. I forget the, the guy's name, but it's the lawyer they meet with later. Donald Cigaretti. Talks about rat Donald Cigaretti. Yeah, Cigaretti. There we go. He certainly does not inspire an equal level of pathos about this. No. But by that same token, it's like he's just fucking around. But that's why I think it's not a, I guess, a, a surprise to me that, you know, people who work on the movie would prize this scene to such an extent because it's kind of in the middle of the movie to, to some extent. It's also got this towering performance that ties all these massive historical and moral ideas together in one seven or eight minute scene. It, it's truly a masterpiece. Thank you for being a part of the show again. Absolutely. Happy to be here. That is the perfect exit. This has been my great guest, Brendan Hodges, mate. Thank you so much. I, I couldn't have put it better myself. Uh, and uh, that is exactly why I needed you to come back on this show. And I can't believe that we've now done a couple of big uh, treatises on this movie together. But uh, uh, it's, you know, I, I think I think more and more, the more 2020 is thrown at us the more that you can take refuge in this movie um not not giving you answers but to to help you ask the right questions and i'm i'm so thrilled that you came back and asked all those questions with me today yeah absolutely it's one of my favorite movies to talk about (laughs) brendan hodges one of my truly favorite people that i've met throughout the One Heat Minute Journey, and just a guy I love to chat to about movies. You can find Brendan the best place is on Twitter at at Metaplex, M-E-T-A-P-L-E-X, movies. Um, All one word. He is wonderful um, there to talk to and to check in with and to interact with because his mind is whip, whip, whip sharp. Um, He's good. He's good. This crew is good. Guys, thank you so much for listening to all the President's Minutes for this next episode we have two more episodes coming this week thank you so much for listening if you can support us go to patreon one heat minute um you can find out all about uh our bonus show rum and rant that's coming every sunday now exclusively to patreon and the rest of this feed one heat minute productions miami nice increment vice josie and the podcasts one heat minute last 12 minutes of the mohicans you can find out about all our shows at one heat minute.com atpm pod on Twitter for this show, one Blake Minute Pod for myself on Twitter and on Instagram. Thanks so much for listening. Catch another episode soon.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.